Welcome to the Georgetown Christian Church Podcast. Join us for worship at 9 and 10.30 a.m. on Sundays. Information about groups, studies, events, and electives is on our website at georgetownchristian.org. Morning, Georgetown Christian. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24. We're continuing on the end times, Jesus, part two. Uh, Israel's war against Hamas is just, and we know it's just because it's, uh, by a very simple definition, it's, it's justified by moral and traditional legal grounds. So, so it's a just war. But a, a question that I know has been circling through the minds of some Christians is, um, does that mean that every activity of Israel is thereby uh, blessed by and anointed by God as righteous? And that is absolutely not. It, it's very important that we are not some group of people that says, no matter what, uh, that's okay. Because it will not then appear as though we're even remotely loving. We're just in a big mess, but we're going to talk about what Jesus says about the end times, because I think that you, uh, like me, might have had some questions from some people who would call themselves Christians, because about three weeks ago now, uh, Hamas invaded Israel, targeted civilians, took between military and civilian hostages 229 people and have murdered over 1,400 people. So Israel's response is a just war. That doesn't mean that everything they do is directly in line with God's will. So uh, naturally then people are going to begin to wonder. They're going to ask you and me questions like, um, what does this mean for my life? Because it appears that there's a war in the Middle East with God's people, Israel. So they're starting to wonder, does this maybe have some bearing on my life? They have uh, what we would call an eschatological itch. So eschatology is like the eschaton means time in Greek. Ology is the study of. So it's the study of the end times. What happens to our soul when we die? Where do we go? What does the end look like? And because we're Christians, we want to have a really good answer for that because that's one of those really big questions that Christianity has a very clear answer for. If your faith is in Jesus, we spend eternity with Jesus. So if we're the ones that are now to answer the question, when you go back to your neighborhood, back to the table at Thanksgiving next month, back to school next week, and you have a student fellow student, or you have maybe a co-worker at work, or family that may just lob that question out there, whew, we're in the Middle East, huh? And then kind of like watch you and see what you say or do. Is this really the end? It's probably on some people's minds. And of course we know from what Jesus said, no man knows the day or time, not even the sun. So if we can't know the day, That means we have to live a certain way until the day arrives. So the question I think that the rest of this passage we're reading and studying today, Matthew chapter 24, beginning at verse 9, is going to answer, I believe, the question, how do Christians live faithfully through the beginning of and up unto the end? How do Christians 
according to Jesus, right here in Matthew chapter 24, how do Christians live faithfully in the beginning of the end and up to the end? So we start in Matthew chapter 24, verse 9. Last week we talked about Jesus teaching on what the end would not look like, what specifically is not the end, and that's wars, rumors of wars, famines, earthquakes, and we, you and I might call it tsunamis, uh, but the seas raging. And he said that is not the end, that's the beginning of the end. And now today we'll finally get to the end in verse 14. So in verse 9, let's read together. You don't have to read out loud, but follow along. Then you'll be arrested, persecuted, and killed, and you'll be hated all over the world because you're my followers. That's us. That's Christians. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. But this letter is written by Matthew to the church. That's us. We're his body. We're Christians. We're believers. What's unclear, though, real quick here, then then is unclear. It could mean before 70 AD, during 70 AD, after 70 AD. That's the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem is just raised by Rome. We don't know when then is. If someone said, hey, let's get together, and you said, yeah, that sounds great. Let's get together sometime. You have no idea when that is. If someone said, hey, let's get together um, after work sometime. We've narrowed it down a little bit. Let's get together later today. Now we've finally got a really tight time frame. And we've inferred that time frame from vocabulary. It's also possible to infer it from grammar. But none of that is present in this verse or the verses following. Which is why we can say we don't know. So if you're anything like me, you're probably more fixated. Um, I'm a little more concerned about these things here. Arrested, persecuted, killed. Those are directly in the way of the way I really want to live my life, to be quite frank with you. I don't think any of you go to bed praying, God, I would love to be persecuted tomorrow. I'm ready. Amen. I don't think you wake up and say that. I don't think any of you probably in your lives have ever said that. I have not. By God's grace, maybe we'll grow into that maturity. But if you're like me, you're probably thinking, I don't know, I live in America. Not seeing a whole lot of, like, arrest or killing, maybe a little persecution for my beliefs, my sharing the word of the kingdom of God, maybe a very little. So what I want to do is use uh, some history and a story based on that history, and I think that it will help you and me relate to what Jesus is teaching here in a way that it's very difficult for a 21st century Christian who has health insurance, vision insurance, dental insurance, life insurance, accident insurance, car insurance, house insurance, mortgage insurance, title insurance. There's insurance for everything. We're literally insulated from everything that could ever possibly be bad. I'm, I'm pretty sure there's, I said the wrong thing, insurance. You have fraud insurance. Like, there's so much insurance. It's just hard to imagine any kind of persecution let alone being killed for our faith. Now, you could go out here and go fast enough on this road to get arrested, but it won't be for your faith. So let's just use some history and then a story built on that history. And I think it will help us understand and relate to the time in which Jesus is saying this, the, the people to whom he's saying it, because Jesus is saying this is what it will be like for us. 
And it directly impacts how faithfully we need to live. So let's build the story on some history. The history being that after the birth of the church, you can read about Luke writes the book of Acts. You can read there in chapter 8 that the church is being persecuted by the state. The church is just here and there. They're being persecuted. And then the Romans come in and squash what's going on in Jerusalem, the birth of the church. It's getting big. But when things get big and they involve lots of people and people get real excited, especially when they're religious, um, Rome has what's called the Pax Romana, which means the peace of Rome. And we have to remember to use very large air quotes because some peace comes in like this and they make everything peaceful again. Uh, so in Acts chapter 8, we see Stephen stoned, and then we see this written by Luke. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. So that's the beginning of the scattering of the church. Now follow along, because we're going to zoom through history real quick to build our story. In AD 249, that's at least 200 years later, the emperor Trajan issued an edict requiring that all of the inhabitants of the Roman Empire were to sacrifice to Roman gods. And so those would be like these cute little statues, and the Caesar would be considered a god. And so with this decree, he thereby uh, first enacted empire-wide persecution. That's 249. Previously, persecutions had just been carried out. We can remember in Peter's letter that those Christians were being persecuted at that time, but they were being selectively persecuted, not everywhere. So then we move on into the era of the Great Persecution, 303 to 313. And now the governor is given a direct command to close the churches, to take away their holy words, their scriptures, their Bible, to burn them to eliminate all the meetings of all the Christians, and for Christians who refused to recant, they would lose their legal rights and in some cases be dragged into that great big circular stadium. You might remember it's called the Colosseum. And Romans loved the entertainment there. So we're going to build a story on top of this historical data. Uh, the story, I think, will help us understand. You probably had a grandma. I had a grandma. So just imagine a little small burg with one small church. Imagine maybe a medium-sized burg with one very medium-sized church. But one church. It's one Christian church. It's only a few hundred years old. Imagine then within that church that your grandmother was a faithful Christian. And during the time of the edict to all the governors to eliminate the Christians, close the churches, burn the Bibles end their time as Christians, all you remember is that last week you saw her, you gave her a hug and a kiss, and you went home, and she stayed at home, and the next day you had heard that she was dragged away by the Roman guard, and she was dragged away because she was not willing to say, I'm not a Christian. She said, in fact, I believe in Jesus, take me. She was ready for this right here. She was at a level of maturity that I'm willing to admit I don't yet have. Grandma was ready. So now fast forward a decade, two decades, and you've got a new emperor, Constantine the Great, and he makes Christianity the official religion. That is a historical fact. Back into our story now, there's grandma who said, I believe in Jesus, and she's a martyr, probably. But then you have a whole bunch of Christians who did what's called get the certificate. 
And that means you go before the Roman governor because you've been accused of being a Christian, and you go before this Roman governor or one of his appointees, and you say, I deny Jesus Christ, I don't want anything to do with him, and I have brought my sacrifice to sacrifice to the Roman gods, or to the emperor, or the Caesar, or whatever. And then they would give you a piece of paper that says you have officially recanted your faith as a Christian. So it's not a rumor then at the church you used to go to that you recanted, that you denied Christ. You have a certificate handed to you by the Roman government that says you did it. You recanted Jesus. This is hard to imagine, but I think the story helps us understand. So let's read verse 10. Jesus says, And many, many will turn away from me and betray and hate each other. Imagine hating each other. Some of you don't have to imagine. Someone's hurt you once, and you hate them. That's happened to me. Some of us don't have to imagine this. This part's a little easier. But imagine betraying. Imagine being alive during this persecution, recanting your faith, say, forget Jesus, I'm all done, I want the certificate, I'll make the sacrifice for my gods. Well, who else do you know that's a Christian? Oh, Darren and Stephanie are Christians. Go get them. Betraying one another is exactly what Jesus said would happen. And those Christians did that. And we will do that. If we don't live faithfully unto Christ, it's so hard to imagine turning away and betraying, and we'll come back to that. But I want to just think about grandma for a second. Hard to imagine hating somebody. But now imagine that person that went and got that certificate. And imagine the story that you hear from your family is, you know, I didn't see grandma, but from my cousin, I heard that my uncle tried to follow the Roman guard, and he saw her taken to the Colosseum. He's pretty sure that she went under there. And then I heard from some people who were in the Colosseum that weekend, they told some more of my friends, and they knew Grandma really well. And they were pretty sure, they were up really high, but they're pretty sure they could recognize that was her walking, albeit with a limp because she was arrested and she was drugged away because she wouldn't deny Jesus. And it was really hard to tell because then after that it was like a whole mass of Christians and a whole bunch of lions and it got really nasty. So I don't know. And then imagine, imagine then that the person who got the certificate 20 years later, let's say 30 years later, when Constantine makes it the official religion, they got their certificate. They can't deny it. Everyone knows what they did. They recanted their faith in Jesus. Now they want to come to church and worship Jesus with us. Jesus that grandma died for. Jesus that they denied. How is the church going to respond? Well, Jesus thinks that towards the end, many, many will turn away and betray and hate each other. I want to talk about turn away before we move on to the next verse. And turn away, our Greek word root at least for this is, tell me if uh, maybe this sounds familiar, like an English word that we all know, scandalizo, scandalizo. And I want to read from Matthew chapter 13, verse 20, another place that Jesus uses at 20 and 21. The seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time when trouble 
or persecution comes because of the word, and this is a word about the kingdom of God, they quickly fall away. So I've got a a picture of a trap here, and this is just a trap for small animals or varmints, but if you've ever trapped varmints, small animals, whatever it is you may be hunting, if you've ever trapped, you have to determine what the likely path of the animal is. It's best if you can just see a path they've worn. And so wherever this path is, if you're trying to trap an animal, you put this trap out there in the path and you stake it to the ground or a tree and you hope that you're going to catch the animal. Likewise with Satan, he's going to recognize our behaviors and our patterns in life, which are not a sin in and of themselves. We are formed into the image of Christ by routines that include spiritual disciplines. Ancient ways for a digital age, anyone? Those routines are many of the answers that the early church found to place themselves in to avoid becoming the betraying, turning away, hateful type of people that Jesus is talking about here. But Christians, if we're not careful about where we're walking, Satan has traps ready for us. This is a a person who fell into a trap. Uh, Paul is writing to Timothy. He's in a prison in Rome, and he says, Do your best to come quickly for Demas because he loved this world. Now, this this doesn't look like loving the world right here. It looks like a physical trap. But if we're talking about our enemy, he's going to set a trap that looks something like loving the world more than we love yielding our life to Jesus and his way, his way of forgiveness, his way of peace his way of love. So we have to look out for the scandalizo. We have to look out for the trap. It's really easy to sit here and believe it's not going to happen to you and it's not going to happen to me. But Jesus says many. That means many. And it's, it's our job then to not be deceived, to not to watch out. From last week, remember, we have to watch out and not panic. But if we got caught up in the panic of whatever might be happening in life, and we fail to watch out, we're going to get caught in a trap. And that could look like listening to a preacher who you're not necessarily sure where they stand on some things that you personally have questions about, and you're doing that alone, and you're not in a biblical community, You have no basis for the truth unless you're comparing what they're saying to God's word. And if we take anything from the early church, they did it in a community. They don't invent some new belief out of thin air on their own. They were in community as they studied what Jesus said. We can get caught up in that from another preacher, another prophet, So listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 24, reading 11 and 12 together here. And many false prophets will appear, and they will deceive many people. Sin will be rampant everywhere, and the love of many will grow cold. So we remember also during this time that people are being tricked by not only the prophets that are false, he says, are coming, but also false messiahs. Remember back to last week, we looked at four that were named in the New Testament. 
I'll just read verses 4 and 5. And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I'm the Christ, and they'll lead many astray. So there's false messiahs, there's false prophets, and there are many of each, and many of us will be led astray. Remember, Jesus said, watch out and don't panic. In college, I I climbed a few rocks, just a few. But one of our friends used some of his student loan money to buy rock climbing rocks. And so we climbed some rocks and it was really awesome. And while we were like really low to the ground, we would say silly things like, don't fall, because we were working on our dad jokes back then. We would say, don't fall. But as we got progressively higher on whatever we were climbing, you know, the kidding kind of stopped. Got a little more serious, because if you fell, bad things are happening, and you're going to go find out what kind of health insurance your parents have or don't have. So then we began saying, like, check your hold there and rest your hand and go for that grab. Don't like halfway go, like actually go for it, but after you rest your hand. How do rock climbers live to climb again? They they encourage each other to check your hold, to rest your hand, to really go and grab. They're watching each other to see on the path that they're taking if they're looking like they can successfully make that climb. How do Christians faithfully live through the beginning of the end time and the end time? I have some suggestions. Some of these will sound like they're from Scripture. I'm telling you this is not a Scripture, that this is my experience in a church seeing people who just like the seed that Jesus described falls on rocky soil and when persecution or hard times or the troubles of this world or the pleasures of life come around that they fall away. These things, when I see these things in the life of a believer, that doesn't happen. If we're to avoid falling into a trap or into a place in our heart when we behave coldly towards one another, when we betray one another, when we hate one another, when we begin to believe false preachers and prophets and messiahs who promise salvation of some kind, these things aren't happening in a person's heart like that. These are something our hearts must rest in peace that comes from the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So imagine how you look as a believer if your heart is living at a kind of peace that passes understanding, that is brought by the presence of God within our hearts and lives. Imagine how you look to the world and imagine how you respond when there's war in the Middle East. Another thing I've noticed, our lives must be rooted in a biblical community. And I mean rooted. I don't mean occasionally, around, sometimes. I mean deeply rooted. The same thing is true, being deeply rooted in prayer and deeply rooted in his word. Friends, this should all be characterized by a faith 
that is in the work of Christ on the cross. And that, that is the bottomest line we can get to. It, our faith must rest on Christ's work on the cross. Not anything else, not another person, not another preacher, certainly not me, not another person who gives you some kind of hope for how we're going to interpret these things that are happening. But Jesus' work on the cross alone. Jesus continues in verse 12, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. I would just love to use this platform to call out a specific food truck. And I'm not going to call them out. But I am going to say, you may not be able to remember when your love for a person grew cold. Have you ever been to a restaurant, or for us it was a food truck, or maybe you've been to some establishment where you were just having a fun time. I don't know, you were bowling or whatever with your family, and you had a very bad experience for whatever reason. Your love grows cold very quickly. And you are all done with that place. And you want to tell your friends about how all done with that place you are. Your love grows cold quickly. Now imagine this happening with Christians. Or is it that hard to imagine? When we go back to our story that's based on history, is it that hard to imagine that you have some people among you who denied Jesus, and then when it became okay again, they're like, oh, I'm back. Hey, everybody, good to see you. But your grandma's dead because she wouldn't deny Jesus. Is it a little easier to understand that that wickedness can cause our hearts than to grow cold? It's not too hard to imagine a Christian who's really excited about two different candidates. Christians, two different Christians, two different candidates. And they're really excited. But what happens when they're maybe even in church, I can't believe, people who vote for this guy, they are not even a Christian. Or people that vote for this guy, there's not even a hint of the love of God in them. And saying that sort of disastrous drivel in this church, being known as a Christian and to say those things or to keyboard commando it, that causes... The love of most. Jesus moved from many to most to grow cold. It causes our own hearts and the hearts of others to become hardened against the inherent nature of the church, a relationship, a body. But when we speak that way, as though anybody who would like that person, they surely can't be a Christian. Or this person, they're definitely going to burn. They're crazy. It's not too hard to imagine then as we consider elections coming up. So the question we're answering, how do Christians live faithfully through the beginning of the end times up to the end? Opportunities to repent and to, to turn our ear to the direction of the Holy Spirit and the, the direction we get from God's word, they're abundant. But we have to begin with repentance. We have to decide that our way is wrong in whatever area of our life it is, and we're turning that one back to Jesus now. Paul says it this way to the Philippians, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, lovely, admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about those things. 
He is inviting us to have our hearts and minds transformed into the character of Jesus Christ. And the paths that we choose to follow will do that. And the traps that Satan lays will be on some of those paths that are not leading us into a closer relationship with Jesus. So we're going to wrap up. I just want to read verses 13 and 14 together as we wrap up because it's a complete thought. So uh, answering the question, how do Christians live faithfully through the beginning of the end times and up to the end? Reading verses 13 and 14, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And the good news about the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world so that all nations will hear it and then the end will come. So we're not simply called to endure and just stop, to just grin and bear it and hope that everything is going to end soon, but we're called to be a part of the mission for which a church was formed. To be very clear, I did just say, we are called to be a part of the mission for which a church was formed. The church was formed to accomplish this mission, that is, announcing the kingdom of God coming to earth. That is, that's our mission. The kingdom of God is coming. Repent. Go read every gospel and every letter of the New Testament. It's what Peter and Paul and Jesus all preached about. We're not simply called to endure, but we are called to endure. So I want to make sure, because there may be a, a slightly leaning Calvinist and a slightly leaving Arminian, and I just want to be very clear that I'm right here very firmly in the Armenian camp. And so let's go through this word, endure. And it is a really simple Greek word, hupomeno. But I want to make sure you don't think I'm just pulling this stuff all out of thin air. We're going to look at how a word can change in usage over time. Think about the way a certain word for happiness used to be used in the 50s. And now how in 2021, when you say gay, it means not happy. It does not mean that anymore. So let's examine the use of this word over time. In concluding, we're going to see in five places different authors, and I want you to ask the question, who is writing it and when are they writing? And some of these are really obvious. You'll see who's writing it because it's the name of the letter. And I've put the dates on them so you can just examine with me and see if it's used consistently. James chapter 1, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he'll receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So you're looking for where you think the word endure might be there in that passage. And we're looking at who wrote this one. It's sort of a giveaway. It's James because it's written right there. It's James. Now the next one, who wrote it rhymes a lot with Paul. So who wrote this letter to the Corinthians? You guys are awesome. Okay, so verse 7, you hear this all the time at weddings, and, um, and parents are quoting it because their children are arguing, and this is what they say. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And look at when that was written, by Paul. Okay, so we're just moving forward in time. we got three more. This letter, written by Peter, for what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure but if when you do good and suffer, if you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. And our last one, um, another letter written by a guy that names, his name rhymes with Paul. Uh, this letter also is written to Timothy from a prison. 
In Rome, Paul writes, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. So it appears to me, I hope that you're concluding the same thing, the word endure is used the same way across time, across authors, in the breadth and depth of the whole entire New Testament. So when Jesus says, if you endure, you will be saved, it just makes it easy to stand in the Armenian camp where it appears that we have a choice versus the Calvinism camp where it appears that only those who God has fully told and made to do it choose to then do it. Whichever side you land on, at Georgetown Christian, you are more than welcome. I don't know a ton of Calvinists here, but they're perfectly welcome, as well as an Arminian. And so I think the verse that Aaron shared this morning is really a great place to find agreement for Christians, Romans 8, 28, that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. You can see how both people would see that verse differently but we cannot argue about the truth of that matter. And that is that God is going to be completely sovereign in whatever and however it is that we believe, Calvin or Arminian, that only the ones who endure to the end will be saved. And so I put these two together because they go together and I'm, I'm back to verse 14. We're wrapping up. Verse 14, And the good news about the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world so that all nations will hear it. And then, and this is the part we're waiting for, and then, say it with me, Georgetown, and then the end will come. Okay, so Jesus has described all kinds of things about what the beginning of the end looks like leading up to the end. But the end comes where you and I share responsibility, and that is sharing the hope of Jesus with a broken world. You and I have responsibility for that. It doesn't mean that you are called to become a foreign missionary. And we can't allow it to mean that. It must necessarily mean that we live lives that appear to be in line with what Jesus describes for us. Faithfully lived in hope of heaven, in the hope of the work that he's done on the cross, and the faith that it's completely forgiven our sins and the sins of those who would trust him and put their faith exclusively in him and to faithfully follow him. Not by any works of ours. It's, we're coming up on Reformation Week. Not by any of our works, but because of what he's done in our lives, he's given us each works now to do. Faithful Christians, I'm just wrapping up. This is our this is the statement for the whole morning, for the rest of the series is complete, right here. Faithful Christians prepare for Jesus' return by understanding Jesus' teaching on the end times, for, by enduring and by sharing the good news of the kingdom of God. We'll just say it again. Faithful Christians will endure to the end. They'll, they'll remain faithful by understanding Jesus' teaching on the end times, by enduring to the end, and by sharing the good news of the kingdom of God. I would ask you to bow your heads and I want to ask you a question. As Christians were baptized into the death of Jesus Christ, 
we're raised to new life in him, we're imbued and dwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. His purpose is to call us to repentance, to guide us to truth, to provide for us an answer whenever we are being persecuted. That Holy Spirit now is, Paul tells us that when the church is gathered together, then that Holy Spirit, this is his temple. Our gathering is his temple. So right now, I don't have a specific call for you and your life. Other than what the Word of God has said, I don't have a a specific, John, you need to A, B, and C. But because we serve an Almighty God who has, by the death of His Son, His resurrection and ascension, sent back God the Holy Spirit to be at work in each of our hearts and lives, at work in the larger body. Now, He is preparing His church for whatever the end is, because we can see that we're in the beginning of the end. So he's preparing his church to not be the many, to not be the most, but to be the ones that are faithful, the ones that endure to the end, the ones that share the good news. But he has work to do in every one of our lives. And that work looks like turning our hearts back to Jesus. That work is literally called repentance through every letter and gospel of the New Testament. It means to turn your heart and life back to Jesus for his glory and for your good. And it is absolutely your choice. But you are empowered by God, by God the Holy Spirit to become more like Jesus by simply obeying whatever it is that we in faith believe God is speaking to your heart right now. I want you, Christian, to go to this place. To not go to this place. Christian, I want you to pursue this habit. It may be biblical community. It may be rooted more deeply in the Word. It may be more time with me in prayer. It may be living a life that looks like it matches what you say you believe. It may be turning a heart that was cold back to a heart that's warm by God coming in and softening your heart. If that's the cry of your heart this morning, ask him to do it. He's faithful to do that work in our hearts and lives. But Christian, we have to be willing to repent of whatever it is that is in the way of becoming more like Jesus. Father, would what you are doing in this body be would it be glorifying to you and it would be would it be hope to a hurting world we pray this in Jesus name